John Wesley once said, you have one business on earth to save souls. That is our mission. That's our vision. That's our purpose, a reason for existing as a local church, to make disciples and reach the lost. Yet, as we discussed last week, uh, following Jesus is not for the faint of heart. The fact is, when Jesus called men and women to follow him, it was such a radical calling that he knew they would never actually be able to do what he had just called them to do, not on their own. Jesus knew they would need help. They would need guidance. They would need wisdom. They would need strength to be able to actually follow him. And it's the same for us today, of course. We've been called to go, to go and make disciples and reach the lost, to go and share the love of Christ and the truth of Christ to people who have never known either, to go and spread the gospel to a world that is running out of time. Yet to do that, to be able to go where Jesus is calling us to go, to do what he's calling us to do, he has to be with us just like he promised us he would be because we can't do it on our own. And of course, during his first coming to the earth, he was with his followers in the flesh to provide all of that. Everything they needed to be able to live the life he had called them to live was available to them through him. But then the time came, of course, for him to leave, which meant his followers would no longer have Jesus next to them to draw from. They would no longer be able to turn to him for help or for guidance or for wisdom or strength, at least not uh, Jesus in the flesh. And he knew that day was rapidly approaching near the end of his journey on this earth. And so just before Jesus ascended to heaven, Luke says, while staying with them, he, referring to Jesus, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now, Acts 1, 4, and 5. In other words, hey, fellas, there isn't much you're going to be able to accomplish in this world without me, so don't even try. Just wait here until I send my spirit to you. And what exactly would that spirit provide for them? Well, Jesus told him, he said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. John 14, 15 through 17. So the Father sent the spirit to be a helper to us, to be with us wherever we go. In John 16, 12, and 13, Jesus said, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So the Spirit was sent to be a guide for us on this journey that Jesus has called us to go on. In John 14, 26, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, and the Father will send in my name. Jesus said, he will teach you all things and bring to you your remembrance all that I've said to you. So the Spirit was sent to be a teacher for us that we may have the wisdom we need to go where we need to go and do what we need to do. And then in Ephesians 3, 14 through 16, the Apostle Paul, who was intimately familiar with his own need of the Spirit of Christ in his life, said, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant to you to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in your inner being. So the spirit was sent to strengthen us, to be able to carry out the work as we go, the work that Jesus has called us to do. Okay, the spirit of Christ is sent by the Father to all who follow Jesus to help us and to guide us and to teach us 
and to strengthen us. Why? Because we cannot live the life that he's called us to live. We cannot go where he's called us to go or do what he's called us to do without his help, guidance, wisdom, and strength. We, we unequivocally cannot. Jesus knew it. The Father knew it. The apostles knew it. In fact, Moses knew it. Joshua knew it. The judges knew it. From one end of the Bible to the other, everyone who ever responded to the call of God in their lives knew the only way they could ever hope to go where God had called them to go and to do what God had called them to do was by the power of God working in them and through them. Otherwise, they could never fulfill that calling, not without God's power and presence in their lives, which raises the question, why is it that so many Christians today think that we can? It is ludicrous to think that we would ever be able to do what Jesus Christ has called us to do without the power and presence of the Holy Spirit working within us because of what the calling demands of us. And in fact, he never expected us to because it is utterly impossible. And yet there are Christians who are trying to, to do that every single day of their lives without the help from the Holy Spirit by their own wits and their own wisdom and their own strength. They try to answer the call of God on their lives. And listen, there are many believers in this world who are living good lives, meaningful lives, risk-averse lives, safe lives under their own steam. The problem with that is Jesus didn't call you to simply live a morally conservative, comfortably predictable, reasonably cautious, and somewhat guarded lifestyle where you come out unscathed in the end. No. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Luke 9, 23, 24. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Look, Jesus' call on your life is one that involves self-denial, which, by the way, is not a reference to simply denying certain things in your life. No, it's actually a reference to denying personal control of your own life. It is completely relinquishing self-determination and committing yourself to a life of total reliance on Jesus. That is what he means when he says you must deny yourself daily, right? Let him deny himself and take up his cross Daily, which in and of itself is a shocking metaphor for what following Jesus actually means for us. He's saying, follow me, following me is a commitment that you will suffer for. You may end up having to give your life for it. Okay, there's no way you're coming out of this deal unscathed. As we'll see as we continue our sermon series today, working our way through the book of Revelation. It's why Jesus said, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Because you cannot build his kingdom and your kingdom at the same time. I've tried. You cannot build his kingdom and your kingdom at the same time. Listen, if you're living for yourself, then you're not living for Jesus. Because you cannot build his kingdom and yours at the same time. It's one or the other. Which means choosing to build his kingdom will mean having to give up your own. And I'm just telling you, you're not going to do that. You'll never be able to live out that kind of commitment to Christ without the help and guidance and wisdom and strength of the Holy Spirit in your life. Especially as the end of this age draws near. Because it's simply too radical of a life to live without help. Yet that's precisely the life you've been called to live if you're in Christ, a life of total reliance on the Spirit of God within you. Remember, Jesus said, you know him, for he dwells with you and it will be in you. 
So Jesus was clear. This is not optional for the follower of Christ. We must learn to rely on his spirit who dwells within us if we're to go where he's called us to go and do what he's called us to do. We have to rely on his spirit to infuse the life of every believer with the help, guidance, wisdom, and strength that we need to be able to carry out the radical call of Christ on our lives. And yet we've become so satisfied with so much less in the modern church. We think we have all that we need to follow Jesus when actually there's a great poverty of power in his church today because we're far more inclined towards self-reliance than we are towards self-denial. Well, listen, as the curtain closes on this final age of the earth as we know it, God is calling us to a radical dependence on him, a total abandonment of self-determination and a total embrace of absolute dependence upon him, which runs counter to the natural inclinations of most people, especially Americans, because we tend to value self-reliance and self-determination a whole lot more than we do total dependence and self-denial. But listen, if you're gonna follow Jesus Christ in your life, It's gonna cost you something. You're not getting out of this deal unscathed. There's no version of following Jesus Christ where you come out unscathed. There's no version of following Jesus Christ that costs you nothing. There's no version of following Jesus Christ that is popular to the masses. There's no version of following Jesus Christ that makes your life easier. No, following Jesus means you're going to have to do some hard things at times in your life. It means you're going to be rejected by other people at times in your life. It means you're going to have to give up some things at times in your life. Following Jesus means there will be times in your life when you have to suffer just because you've chosen to follow him. And I'm telling you, you'll never be able to navigate all of that in your life without the help, guidance, wisdom, and strength of the Holy Spirit. You won't. Now, on the other side of that, is once you learn to rely on the help, guidance, wisdom, and strength of the Spirit of God, you will go places you otherwise would never go. You'll have conversations and become a part of things that are bigger than you, things you never imagined possible in your own life. Mary Beth and I, we do a lot of premarital counseling. One of the questions we always ask every couple is, have you figured out yet what your marriage is gonna be about that's bigger than you and her, you and him? Your marriage has to be about something bigger than just your marriage. Because he hasn't called us to be self-focused. This life is bigger than us. Things you never imagined possible in your own life are possible when you follow Christ. And yet he's called you to nothing less. Pat Morley said, if the Great Commission is true, our plans are not too big. They're too small. He's calling us to go to make disciples, to reach the lost. And as we'll see, the closer we get to the end of this age, the more costly that will become. Let's pick the story back up then where we left off last time at Revelation chapter 11. We'll begin with the first two verses. Then I was uh, given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Uh, As seen in previous chapters and as discussed last week in all three uh, series of judgments in Revelation, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, there are not only seven judgments in each series, but there's also an interlude between the sixth and seventh judgment in each series. A pause, if you will, in the timeline, which gives us a more in-depth look in each case at what is happening with the overall plan of God for these last days. And if you were here last week, you'll remember 
that the interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpets began at the start of chapter 10 that we covered last week and continues through verse 14 of chapter 11. We won't get quite that far today, but to be clear, these verses are a symbolic representation of the fate of the witnessing church, as we'll see during its final period of opposition and persecution on the earth before the church is taken up into heaven in a cloud, as John describes it in verse 12, which we'll get to. And again, you'll remember from last week that the scroll John was made to eat was sweet as honey in his mouth and bitter in his stomach, which was a foreshadowing of what's happening here today in this part of the story as the church experiences both the blessings of God and the persecution of men in the last days. As John is given a measuring rod like a staff and he's told to measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out for it's given over to the nations. So first of all, just so you you understand, it's a common it was common for biblical prophets to employ a sort of symbolic actions in order to dramatize their message, right? So Isaiah walked around stripped and barefoot as a sign of Egypt's impending captivity to Assyria in Isaiah 22 through 5. Uh, Ezekiel dug through a wall and carried out his belongings in the sight of Israel as a symbol of the coming exile in Ezekiel 12, 1 through 7. Uh, in the New Testament, the prophet Agabus tied his feet and hands with Paul's belt to show that the apostle would be bound by the Jews at Jerusalem in Acts 21, 10, and 11. And likewise here, the measuring of the temple is a symbolic way of declaring its preservation with the temple itself symbolizing the believers and followers of Christ, just as we see in many other places throughout the New Testament, including 1 Corinthians 3, 6 and 7, uh, 16, 17, 2 Corinthians 6, 16, Ephesians uh, 2, 19 through 22, 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10, and of course, Revelation 3, 12, which we've already seen, and uh, chapter 21, verse 22. That's, that's to name a few. Just as we often say today, the church isn't the building It's us, the people of God. So the temple here represents God's people. While the court outside the temple, a reference to the court of the Gentiles, which was the designated space for non-Jews visiting the temple, that space represents in this vision the unbelieving world. He says, for it's given over to the nations, right, as John is told. So John's being shown here that God is going to give spiritual sanctuary to the faithful believers against the demonic assault of the Antichrist that is coming, the sweet taste of the scroll. However, the protection of the believers, again symbolized by the measuring of the temple, was not a promise of security, hear me, against physical suffering or even death at the hands of men the bitter effect of the scroll. It was rather protection against spiritual danger as Jesus made clear in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Remember what we saw from the very beginning of Revelation, the wrath of God and the wrath of men are two very different things. Jesus promises us that we will be spared the wrath of God and yet at the same time he guarantees us that we will experience the wrath of men. And so the church in these last days will be kept safe from the demonic assault that is coming upon the earth while experiencing persecution at the hands of the unbelieving world. As John is told, they will trample the holy city, another designation for the church, for 42 months. That's three and a half years, which is also foreshadowed, by the way, in Daniel 7.25 in uh, chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. In Luke 21.24, Jesus refers to this period of time as the times of the Gentiles. And so just as John was shown in the last chapter, this vision is a mixture of sweet and bitter for the church as there will without a doubt 
be great persecution, and yet at the same time, the call for us to go out into all the world and proclaim the truth about God to lost people, right? That call includes the protection of God's people in the process. Now, listen, the problem that most of us have with this particular concept of God's protection being described here, or even blessing, in this part of the story that clearly brings with it persecution and suffering. The blessing that John describes. The problem we have is the fact that most of us were raised in the American evangelical church, much of which has in modern history associated God's blessings and protection with comfort and ease and prosperity to the exclusion of any kind of persecution or suffering. Listen, I've read this thing from one end to the other. You, you have to turn a blind eye to entire paragraphs of scripture if you're gonna hold that view. James, the brother of Jesus said, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, not if you meet. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James 1, 2 through 4. The apostle Peter said, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice what, Peter? Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. First Peter 4, 12 and 13. He also said, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. First Peter 3, 14. The apostle Paul said, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we're afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshakable for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. 2 Corinthians 1, 5 through 7, in Romans 5, 3 through 5, he said, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who's been given to us, Romans 5, 3 through 5. Can you see in these verses, there's, there's about a million more, Persecution, suffering, and blessing are not mutually exclusive. They're all tied together. In fact, there's no salvation without suffering. If Jesus hadn't done what he did on the cross, there would be no salvation for us. And again, Peter said, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. This is usually the point where someone comes back with the quote from 1 Corinthians 10, 13 to make the case, well, yeah, Rob, but God won't give you more than you can handle. He promised us that. Listen, that's not what that verse means. In fact, it's one of the most misinterpreted, misapplied passages of Scripture in all of the Bible. People say it all the time. The Apostle Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And of course, people interpret this passage all the time to mean God will never give you more in this life than you can handle. That's actually not even close to what Paul's saying here. The fact is, we are most certainly given far more in this life than we can handle at times. Just ask a parent who's lost a child. 
or anyone who's lost a spouse or endured some other great tragedy or faced an insurmountable need in their life, we are at times given far more, far more than we are able to handle. Listen, that's why we need Jesus, because there's nothing in this life that he cannot handle. So we look to him, not to ourselves at those times in our lives when we're facing much more than we're able to handle on our own, when your need is so overwhelming that it's beyond what you can provide for yourself. And so Paul says, because God is able to provide everything you need, you will never be put in a situation or a circumstance where the only solution for that need is for you to sin because he always provides a way of escape. He always provides what we need without us having to sin. That's why he starts the passage out with no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Because of course we're all tempted to sin. But no matter how strong the temptation is to sin, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Your ability to what? To not sin. And so with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Listen, God's protection in your life doesn't always mean a comfortable, secure, painless, risk-free life. No, it means he's there to protect your spirit, to protect your heart, to protect your mind through the discomfort, the insecurity, the pain, the risk, even suffering, so that you might be able to endure whatever this world throws at you without walking away from the faith, without sinning. It means he's with you no matter what happens to you, even to the end of this age. Why? So that you can go and do what he's called you to do, even in the midst of your suffering, as we'll see as we continue. Billy Graham said, we can be certain that God will give us the strength and resources we need to live through any situation in life that he ordains. The will of God will never take us where the grace of God cannot sustain us. Let's finish the story for today, verses three through 10. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he's doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where the Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. So now John sees two witnesses who prophesy and preach repentance. Uh, that's why they're in sackcloth uh, for 1260 days. That's three and a half years to the same lost people in verse two who are persecuting them for 42 months, the same three and a half year period of time. In the literary sense, these witnesses are comparable to Moses and Elijah. Uh, in verses five and six, they have the power like Elijah to consume their enemies with fire, Saint Kings 1.10, and to shut up the sky so that it will not rain, 1 Kings 17.1. Uh, like Moses, they can turn the waters into blood, Exodus 7, 14 through 18, and strike the earth with every kind of plague, Exodus 8, 12. And in the ancient 
Hebrew tradition, by the way, it was common, a common expectation that Elijah and Moses would actually return before the end of the world. Malachi had prophesied, Behold, I'll send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day the Lord comes. Malachi 4.5, and likewise Deuteronomy 18.18, which says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. That, that passage gave rise to the same expectation for the Hebrews about Moses. And of course, it was Moses and Elijah who appeared with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration in Mark 9.4. And so uh, there were Jewish people from the second temple period that was 516 bc to ad 70 who believed that prophets would return at the end of the age particularly figures like elijah who had uh, never died but were taken up to heaven and so at a glance it it sounds like john's describing the literal return of elijah and moses here however when you look a little closer you can see the obvious symbolism behind these witnesses who more likely represent the church again first of all there's a strong uh, parallel between the witnesses here in verse 7 and the church as a whole in chapter 13, verse 7. Furthermore, as John goes on to identify the two witnesses as the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth, we know in chapter 4 of Zechariah's vision, the two olive trees symbolize the anointed ones, right? A royal leader to rebuild God's temple and a high priest to lead worship in it, suggesting, of course, under this new covenant era, that the witnesses here in verse three represent all of the believers, the anointed ones whom the lamb has redeemed to serve as priests and to rule as kings. His church, as we've already seen back in chapter one, verse six, and in uh, chapter five, verse 10. And then of course, back in chapter one, we saw the lampstands being identified with the church as well. And so despite the oppression and persecution by the unbelieving world for three and a half years, the church in these last days is supernaturally protected by the same power that protected Elijah and Moses from their oppressors as the church continues to preach repentance and the gospel to the lost, at least until the call to witness is completed when the beast that rises from the bottomless pit makes war on them. The original language here, by the way, would suggest a large group of people under attack or at war, not just two individuals. So this scene in the last, uh, it, it's the last epic struggle between the kingdoms of the earth and the witnessing church for three and a half years, where John says when they have finished their testimony, they're killed, martyred for their prophetic ministry and witness to the gospel, and their dead bodies will lie in the street. From the uh, ancient Eastern point of view, to be deprived of burial was an act of great indignity. So this is like the ultimate shame as the bodies of many martyrs are left in the streets for three and a half days, which of course corresponds to the three and a half years of their preaching. And as a result, a holiday is declared, a giant party, even the exchanging of gifts as the pagan world rejoices over the defeat of the church, or so it seems. We'll see next week when we talk about the rapture of the church. For now, we're gonna spend our remaining, uh, remaining time today focused on the work of God's people. The sheer determination here to go, to answer the call of Christ, to make disciples, even when it seems the whole world is against them, even in the midst of great suffering. Eugene Boring says, their faithfulness does not deliver them from death, but causes it. How's that line up with your theology? Their faithfulness does not deliver them from death, but causes it. Look, 
The world has always shown hostility to the message of God. That's nothing new. What ought to give us tremendous concern is not the persecution we might experience in the future, but the reason why we're not experiencing it now. Look, if we're being honest, the contemporary church, at least in our country, has existed for quite some time now rather comfortably in a world of increasing wickedness. Why is the church not feeling more resistance from the world? Is it possible we've allowed the message to become so watered down, so weak, so feckless that it convicts no one and transforms nothing? So the world has no reason to resist the church, which to be sure is a comfortable way to live, but I'm not sure that's the life he's called us to live. It's certainly not the life those early disciples lived, It's not the life the disciples in the last days as we see here in John's vision live. So why should it be any different for us now? I don't know, maybe we've been taught to value our comfort more than his calling. I know this, God's calling on your life isn't diminished by the difficulty of your circumstances. You hear me? You're called to make disciples of Christ, to go and do the work of Christ, no matter your circumstances. Can that be risky, costly, dangerous, uncomfortable? Yeah, you bet it can. But listen, we're God's people. We're supposed to be the harbingers of truth and the embodiment of love to a culture that doesn't understand the real meaning of either. And so it is incumbent upon us to share the truth of Christ and to show the love of Christ to a world that is literally dying without ever experiencing either one of those. And make no mistake, we must do both. We must share truth and show love. Why? Because that's exactly what Jesus did. And of course, I know know we all agree with that, but I also think there's a deep misunderstanding in much of the modern church today about what it looks like to share the gospel because we've confused sharing the truth and showing love with being nice. Now listen, as Christians, for that matter, uh, as human beings, we should be nice people. Absolutely. There's nothing worse than someone who professes to be a Christ follower and treats other people unkindly. In fact, uh, some of the most unkind people I've ever known in my life claim to be Christians. That ought not be. But at the same time, being nice is not always synonymous with sharing truth and showing love. The fact is, Jesus wasn't always nice to people. During the Passover in John chapter 2 when he made a whip of cords and went into the temple and drove the money changers out and flipped over their tables and poured their coins out while harshly rebuking them, he wasn't being nice at all. Matthew 16, 23, when he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Gee, thanks, Jesus. You're a hindrance to me. That wasn't a particularly nice thing for Jesus to say to Peter. In John 20, 27 through 29, Jesus appears to his disciples, proving to Thomas that he'd risen from the dead because Thomas didn't believe the reports of the other disciples that Jesus was alive. So Jesus says to him, hey, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered, am I Lord, am I God? And Jesus said to him, yeah, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Like, not blessed are you, the other ones. Jesus wasn't being very sensitive to Thomas's feelings at that point, was he? 
That wasn't an especially nice moment between he and Thomas. In fact, Mark's gospel, he says afterward, he appeared to the 11 themselves as they were reclining at table and he rebuked them. Jesus rebuked his own disciples for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they'd not believed those who saw him after he'd risen, Mark 16, 14. That was right before he told them to go out into all the world and proclaim the gospel. The truth is, we could spend the rest of this sermon just reading through examples of Jesus not being particularly nice to people. Yet when Jesus wasn't nice, he also wasn't random. It's not like he was in a bad mood, so he decided to be unkind to someone. No, every single time that Jesus was not nice to someone, it was because in that moment, being nice would have hindered him from sharing truth or showing love. You understand, that is the benchmark for the Christian when it comes to being nice or when we are to consider the feelings of other people. As followers of Christ, we should always strive to be kind considerate nice people unless being nice unless being considerate of others feelings means not sharing truth or showing real love because we're afraid it might offend them you understand in that moment feelings take a back seat to truth and love because our passion for saving the loss with the truth of the gospel should be greater than our compassion for how it might affect someone's personal feelings when they disagree Seems like a really obvious thing to say to a room full of Christians, and yet the proclamation of the gospel has not always been one of the hallmarks of the modern church. Uh, Political involvement, social activism, personal testimonies, cultural awareness, acts of compassion have often been at the forefront of the church more than the gospel message itself. And understand, those are all good things, but those things are not the gospel. Listen, even your personal testimony about what God has done in your life, that's good and you should definitely share it. But you understand, your testimony is not the gospel. People tell me all the time, I shared the gospel. I said, what'd you tell them? And they tell them the story about their life. Listen, your testimony is your story. The gospel is his story. Your testimony can help validate the gospel at work in your life, but you have to share the gospel. His story. When Jesus gave us the great commission in Matthew, what was to be the singular focus of the church? He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And how exactly are we supposed to do that, Jesus? He said, by teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. That we may make disciples, right? Listen, the way we make disciples is by proclaiming the gospel. The way we evangelize is by proclaiming the gospel. The way we show compassion is by proclaiming the gospel. The way we share the love of Christ is by proclaiming the gospel. The way we engage our culture is by proclaiming the gospel. Well, do we not feed the hungry, clothe the naked, heal the sick, and comfort the hurting? Of course we do. But listen, all of that is simply a consequence of the outcome of sharing the gospel. Because if all of our good works are not accompanied by the proclamation of the gospel, then all we're doing is offering temporary solutions to an eternal problem. The gospel must be the singular and central focus of the church if our social justice and acts of compassion and political involvement and all the rest is to have any lasting meaning at all. So yes, compassion has always been one of the hallmarks of Christianity and therefore the church as well, or at least it should be. But again, in the modern age, Christianity, we've often, we've often confused a passion 
for the proclamation of the gospel with compassion for the feelings of those who are lost and may be offended at the hearing of it. Right? To the point that we either water the message down or we refuse to share it at all. And I'm telling you, that kind of misguided compassion is extremely dangerous for this world because that is the kind of compassion that has kept scores of Christians from sharing their faith in Christ openly with others who are lost. In fact, personally, I believe that compassion, at least our idea of it, concern for other people's feelings, I believe that compassion has probably kept more people out of heaven than hate. because we don't share it or we water it down so much that it's ineffective because we're worried about how people might receive it. I've shared this story with you before. It's been a few years. It bears repeating. Penn Jillette, the famous magician, he's half of the act Penn and Teller, if you've heard of them. He's an outspoken and passionate advocate for atheism and he was once witnessed to by a Christian after one of their shows and although Gillette is uh, still an atheist, as far as I know, he was so impressed by the man's effort to tell him about Jesus that he said this, and I'm quoting. He said, I've always said, I don't respect people, he's referring to Christians, I don't respect people who don't proselytize, who don't share the gospel. This is an atheist talking. I don't respect that at all. If you believe there is a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell and not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? He then offered this example to illustrate his point. Again, I'm quoting. He said, if I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point that I tackle you. And this is more important than that. How can we possibly say we love Jesus and not share the gospel with those who need to hear it, even those who hate us for sharing it? Well, listen, what if it costs you your life? Are you still called? Does the Great Commission still apply? Or does the call for us to go out into all the world and proclaim the gospel only apply when it isn't risky, costly, dangerous, or uncomfortable? Evangelist Vance Havner once said, it's not our business to make the message acceptable, but to make it available. We're not to see that they like it, but that they get it. Okay, the truth that we cannot afford to ignore is that Jesus Christ has called every one of us to go and make disciples and reach the lost, to go and share the love of Christ and the truth of Christ to people who have never known either, to go and spread the gospel to a world that's running out of time. And of course, his spirit is with us to help us and guide us and to teach us and to strengthen us, to protect us along the way. And yet that doesn't guarantee we won't be persecuted or even made to suffer for it along the way. You see, the whole point of the help and guidance and instruction and strength that we receive from the Holy Spirit as we go is not to keep us comfortable. No, it's to enable us to deliver the message of the gospel with the confidence and boldness in the midst of the persecution and suffering that sometimes comes with it. So I'm just telling you, we, we, we really have to get over this idea that God's best for us, that his blessing and even protection necessarily means he will always keep us safe and comfortable. He never promised us that. What he did promise was that he he would be with us every step of the way, which honestly 
is all that we need. And the sooner we understand and accept that, the better, because Jesus has given us a clear calling. It's time to go. Let's pray.